Welcome, welcome, welcome back to a brand new episode of the Spiraling Podcast, episode number 19. We're back here with part two of Sonny McClamrock. When I went down to Houston in person, got to hang out with Sonny, meet him face to face. It was a, a really good episode. I think you guys are really going to like this one. And now uh, this one gets into the degree, just kind of, you know, fair warning. Uh, Sonny gets into some <clears throat> pretty deep topics here with his um, experiences. Uh, with sexual addiction and uh, kind of some own battles that he has been uh, facing throughout the year. So anyway, hope you guys enjoy this episode. I'll see you guys on the outro. Bye. Uh, so we last kind of left off uh, uh, with you, Sonny. I remember last show we kind of talked about a little bit about your um, your sexual addiction and uh, how you told me that you wanted to get into the nitty gritty in, in person and it makes uh, a lot more sense to do so. But I was hoping you kind of refresh us a little bit uh, from our last episode. Uh, when did uh, this kind of start for you? Uh, in elementary school. Okay. Uh, mom and dad divorced when I was about five. Okay. Um, been told that dad hadn't been faithful, which was the main reason okay. that he had left or mom had left. We were living in the South Carolina or Florida at the time. Yeah. Um, so we moved back home to North Carolina where I was actually born and lived very close to her family. Like we all lived on the same road, grandparents, uh, aunts, uncles, cousins. Sure. We lived on about 25 acres, farms. Um, somewhere in late elementary school to 10, 11, 12, went over to a cousin's house. Okay. And he showed me a stack of magazines, pornographic magazines that his father had. And just kind of started going through them. Um, they were uh, not Playboys. They were beyond that. Like, uh, wow. like penthouse and hustler um so i had never seen a naked woman before especially a naked man and a naked woman you know having sex so those images burned into my soul and over the years if i came across those people or actors again i remembered that yeah 10 20 years before um and I just remember going back over and over. It was hundreds of them. And then somewhere or another, we found some VHS. You even know what VHS is. I'm, I remember VHS. Uh, and so we would get out of school before his parents got home. We had about 45 minutes and we would just watch, watch him on the couch. And uh, I would actually sneak over to his house if, if, on a weekend or a weekday and go through the magazines. And it got to the point to where uh, that's the only reason I was really going over there. And then one time we were out in the barn and we found more and then we found them in the truck. So they were all over. Wow, so you had them everywhere. Yeah, they were everywhere. And so I was being exposed to it two, three, four times a week. And very much would have said even as a child or a preteen mm-hmm. so that pl- that comes a lot into it have not being in puberty 
yet and looking at this stuff uh, steal something in your mind. Uh, just, you know, the loss of innocence. And that's where a lot of traumatic things happen. You know, like if something happens to a child, it gets lodged in this file that stays there forever. Yeah. So from there, um, I was, st- I grew up in a, I'm just going to say a religious home. I didn't see it as religion. It was uh, a small town. Uh, it was a Pentecostal church. Um, I fell in love with God and the Lord as a five or six year old, dedicated my life to him at that age. So this went very much against um, my faith. So there was instantly hiding and shame and guilt and you didn't tell nobody sure so of course with the pornography comes to masturbating Mm -hmm. I was masturbating even before uh, I could produce sperm yeah Um, so uh, I didn't have any girlfriends uh, even through if I did have a little girlfriend it was just Nothing physical, you know, because we're just on the bus or at school or whatnot. Um, But really started trying to uh, look up girl skirts, um, down blouses. Mm -hmm. uh, And then when I turned 16, I got a driver's license, found the little newsstands. So I would go out of my town to another town and go to the gas stations that had the magazines. Um, I would go through trash dumpsters and find where people had disposed, you know, their magazines. Uh, so not, not having a dad in my life, um, I didn't actually get my first youth pastor until I was like 16 or 17. So my second girlfriend and I, we were now 18, 19, uh, became just sexual promiscuous. That's probably not the right word. Uh, we weren't sexually active, but we were touching each other. And this was the first time I'd actually physically been with a woman. Yeah. And that started a cascade of many, many girls from that point. But I was an absolute addict at that point there's no phones no computers yet so I'm visiting gas stations spending most of my money on the magazines on the VHS Um, one of the main reasons that I wanted to leave my town to start because I wanted to start over I was ready to go to I was going to go to a Christian college Um, I was going to study criminal justice and biblical studies and I was going to have chapel every day and be a part of some sort of ministry there so again I knew the Lord I wanted to serve him but I had this I had this secret that I hadn't told anybody not even my very best friend Josh from high school yeah so I go off to college um, within a year or two we have the internet and so that dial up internet take 30 minutes for one image to pick you know pull up but I was patient um, the first time I was ever told that you might have a problem was when my roommate caught me multiple times on his computer. Okay. I just couldn't get off of it fast enough. 
before the door could get open. He's like, it's like two or three times. Maybe, maybe you should go talk to somebody about this. So he was the first person, I'm like 19, 20 years old, that ever found out. Yeah. This thing I'd had for almost 10 years. It was very embarrassing. And it just actually brought more shame, more guilt, even though he didn't shame me. Um, he didn't have that issue. He'd actually never seen a naked woman. Wow. Uh, and so, you know, just from there, of course, I didn't go tell anybody. Um, there in Springfield was a uh, adult store that I found. I remember one time I had my Evangel shirt on. Mm-hmm. And I took it and flipped it inside out because I didn't want anybody from the store seeing there was a Christian evangel student there shopping. And the, in the backpack, there was the hard, hardcore. And that's where I ended up finding myself. And that's when I got introduced to some hardcore stuff. I remember one time I was back there and one of my professors was in there. Oh, and that was uh, awkward. very, very awkward. Yeah, we just didn't, never, didn't, never didn't talked. Didn't speak to it. Nope, nope, nope. nope. So uh, it just progressively got worse. Okay. It made my uh, Christianity very difficult because I'm not telling anybody. And I'm looking at pornography in between classes, staying up late. Uh, I didn't even know that there was an, what an addiction was. I just liked looking at pornography and ended up getting engaged my junior year. And we actually became, that was the first person I became sexually active with. And I just was, she had an apartment and I was just obsessed yeah. with it. Uh, and I had a 3.0 and after getting engaged and giving myself to her, I, it got down like a 1.6. Wow. Nothing mattered. Just physically being with her. And if I couldn't be with her, I, you know, did my thing. So we ended up breaking up and I had met my wife like the very first day of school and we were friends, but she had secretly liked me and I'd kind of liked her, but we just dated different people. And when we got married a couple months after college, I was an addict like I'd never been. And now all my hope had been placed in marriage. I'm now married. Now I'm free from the guilt and the shame that I had with, you know, yeah. being with my ex to, you know, being with her. And so, um, that's a really big lie that a lot of men listen to. So moving doesn't help. It just changes your environment. I mean, there are times to move and change your environment, sure. but it doesn't make you, it's not going to help in your addiction because if it's out there, you're going to, there's a will, there's a way. Yeah. Getting married doesn't help. So some of the two biggest misconceptions that are out there, I tried and marriage didn't help. But it didn't take my wife very long to realize that uh, I was really into, you know, sex. And I don't think it was maybe a couple years that eventually she caught me on the computer, either through the cookies or I left something up. And, you know, you just, uh, you make it small. It's not a big deal. It's just this one-time thing. You know, I can stop. Yeah. Uh, and at that time, 
I was into some pretty just, you know, it's pornography is just like a gateway. Like you might start off with the Playboy and it might right. move to the, the penthouse and the hustler, but eventually you're going to have fantasy, your fantasies and fetishes. And it's those corridors of fetishes that can lead into some gruesome and even illegal material. So it's just one high to the next, to the next, to the next. Right. And it's just, it, you know, I know now it was a dopamine release. You get desensitized enough. You have to find another high to get that same sensation. Yeah. So, you know, I remember uh, being a policeman and being securing buildings and getting on their computers, looking at pornography on the job and just being very scared from my job. Every time I got called into the office, not knowing why I was being called in, I thought this was going to be why I was called in. That was going to be one of my questions. It was, did you ever, were you struggling with that addiction through uh, being a police officer? And the next thing was like, did you ever feed that addiction while on duty? And so. I did. Especially when cell phones came out. Okay. I I would sit in my patrol car and look at it, either on a break or in a park. Um, That was very conflicting because I loved my job. Right. Um, and I wanted to do good. Uh, I never didn't go to a call because of it. Right. I never like directly let it involve me, but I was definitely preoccupied with fantasy, especially on the downtime. And most people probably already know this, but most of the time cops aren't doing anything. We only respond to 5, 10, 15, maybe 20% of our day. Usually it's us doing our own traffic stops or securing places or doing just being proactive. We're not actually on a call. So there's a lot of downtime. Um, Then we get paid breaks and lunches and stuff like that. And um, yes, it interfered indirectly all the time. Did did anyone at the department ever suspect you? Uh, Not at the first one. After I left, uh, I ended up, I became very good friends with my sergeant who ended up becoming, becoming the lieutenant all the way up to the assistant chief. Yeah. I ended up telling him at some point of what I did because I just needed to kind of get it off of my, and he said, everybody does it. Well, all officers, he goes, we don't, we've gotten so many reports from physicians looking at it. And wanting us to do some sort of investigation that he goes, it's a, it's, he goes, but you're on somebody else's computer. You know, you would have got into a lot of trouble, but it it happens all the time. Wow. It's three o'clock in the morning. You're bored. You, you got keys to everything, you know? So then, uh, so I'm at it. I'm getting ready to get to a place in my story that, uh, is probably the most sensitive. Okay. And there were times in my life where I concealed, hid, lied. Um, So the first thing you become as an addict is a liar. You're already inherently selfish, only living for you and your next high. Yeah. And now you become a liar, deceiver, a manipulator. Being a policeman, I've learned a little bit about lying and deceiving and manipulating. Then I became a detective. And then I actually got certified in detecting deception. 
So now I know how to actually see through certain mechanisms of a person's mannerisms if, if they're lying or not. Yeah. And so I could reverse engineer that and do the exact opposite. Okay. So I became what I would consider a professional deceiver or a professional manipulator. Mm-hmm. Um, I could see through lies, but you couldn't see through my lies because I could look the other way with my eyes, not cross my legs, yeah. not be jittery, look dead you in the eyes and uh, recall a real story that actually happened to me, but tell yeah. a lie. So uh, that didn't help at all. Um, now I have become a detective. I have my own computer. Um, I'm now working uh, child abuse cases. Okay. So uh, I, I started uh, Crimes Against People and then eventually I got into Crimes Against Children. And so that was difficult. Yeah. Um, not that I was ever into the children, um, but I'm still seeing pornography. Yeah. You know, I'm still seeing naked people and sexual acts. So there is that uh, problematic dopamine release, but it's not, it wasn't one of my fetishes. It wasn't something that I, whether it was illegal, right, it was just so wrong. I mean, I had seen some things that were really bad. That if, I, if you put the image in front of me right now, I can probably like throw up because I'm not in that moment because, and that's the way that I see a lot of these men and some women that do look at child pornography. They, they weren't, uh, they didn't start their internet. They didn't type in child pornography. It led to that. They weren't born. They're not 30 year old men who just all of a sudden like 10 year old girls. It's like the, the people who look at maybe bestiality or, uh, swinging. Nobody starts with that. You're just exposed to certain things. Men have a tendency to like younger women or younger people or pretty people. And so there are modeling agencies that would take an 18 year old and dress her up like a 14 or 15 year old. And so you're looking at a legal age model, but she looks like she's 13 or 14. Well, over time, that's what you, if that's what you like, then it's just a number at that point. So when I begin to interview these guys who were looking at child pornography, downloading it, distributing it, and then further on started actually, you know, abusing children, they were just going down different corridors that other people hadn't gone down. Um, and so I was able to have some empathy. I'm still applying the full law to them. I'm still telling the DA, this is what happened. They should go to jail or whatever. But on the, the human side of things, I can have some sympathy, even beyond sympathy. I can have some empathy because I understand now the addiction. I understand that it's not controllable. It is like a disease, like sugar. 
You know, people aren't going to say consuming sugar is a disease. Well, obesity is a disease. And so um, in being a detective, being exposed to all of that, my, I'm just lost in pornography. I had some affairs. Um, my affairs just stemmed out of long-term relationships that I had from people close to my wife and I after knowing them for a year or two or three years. And, you know, me and my husband, we're not getting along right now. And, oh, and I want to help. So now I step in and I begin to help. And next thing you know, and that my wife and I hadn't, this is year seven to ten. We're not really getting along. I'm lost in pornography. I'm not really too interested in her. Um, you get into this relationship. These these women <clears throat> are desperately looking for attention. Yeah. And I'm different. I'm looking for an outlet to be deviant. And so it was just a perfect storm. And so I had several affairs. Uh, and that ultimately we ended up, I was a youth pastor. And I left the church, started another church, started going to Christian counseling, but never did go to actually fight my addiction. Yeah. So in just shortening this long story, I ended up having another affair a few years later. Okay. And it was after that, that a group of men had just started a meeting called Castamonia at my church, which was a version of AA, but SA for Sex Anonymous. And we had a purple book instead of a green book, but it was all about sex addiction instead of alcohol. And so it was just like a sign for me that even, I, don't, I don't even have to go anywhere. It's right here in my, my, my church. Yeah. Like I've been in this room a thousand times, like Sunday school room. So I ended up joining that group, and that's when I discovered that I am a sex addict. And that's when things five years ago began to change. Yeah. So a little bit, a little bit about what, um, what what we're doing with the podcast, and I really appreciate you sharing your story and um, putting it out there. Um, I've, I've had a couple other people that have come on the the, the show here in the last couple of days that. that are suffering through the same thing, sex addiction. And um, we, we were approached by um, a pastor in Colorado um, to help put together um, a sex addiction um, series on the podcast. So it, by, by you guys, I, I'm by no means an expert at, on sexual addiction. My, my, I, have, I am an addict, I'm a drug addict, I'm an alcoholic. Um, so I, I know where you guys are coming from when it comes to the addiction in your head. Um, but I don't have the sexual addiction. And so you and I have talked before about um, you know, what, what makes it okay to, to shoot your buddy a text of a, a topless girl um, that you found on a meme or on the internet and you're, you're joking around with your buddies about it. Um, my dad's bad about sending me stuff like that. <laughs> but I mean, it, it, I, I, I see it on a daily basis. Uh, my business, will, I, I, I employ blue-collar workers. Um, it, it's, it's around me nonstop. Um, but it doesn't phase me and it doesn't, it, it, 
I'm almost like you said, desensitized towards it. But the thing that you know separates you and I is I'm not chasing another another image or another fantasy. It kind of ends right there for me. Mm-hmm. So I'm very curious um, with my research and with with talking to different people about what what does it I mean what triggers it in your brain to like for me doing a doing a line of cocaine and saying oh well in 20 minutes I'm doing another line of cocaine because I'm chasing that high but how does that like an image like I I just I I'm not understanding and I know it's there I just. Um, you know what I'm trying to say? Yeah, 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 yeah. This is, that's asked a lot, especially like by the wives, mm-hmm. because they don't get it because they're wired differently. Yeah. And so, again, I'm not a doctor or counselor. I just have my experience. Yeah. And then, um, two, three things kind of pop into my head at the same time. First of all, all sin is rooted in the heart so everything starts in the heart not the head on a physical level it is nothing more than a dopamine release Mm -hmm. you get a physical high from cocaine you get the same physical high when you drink that sweet tea it's the same over time you're going to have to make that sweet tea sweeter we're going to have to drink more of it at some point. And that's why we gravitate to some of the restaurants that have the sweetest tea. When you drink weak tea, you're like, oh, like it's actually bad. But five years ago, it was really, really good. Right? So it's like the thief. Now, you and I have no empathy or sympathy towards a thief, but there's adrenaline, there's highs. There's all sorts of things that come along with that. We've just never identified as that. I got away with this. Can I get away with this? Can I get away with that? Maybe what motivated them to start it was they needed some money because their mom or their sister or their girlfriend was really sick. So the intention behind the thievery seemed to kind of be good. They got away with this. They got away with that. Now there's a shift inside of their morality. So we justify everything that we do, whether it comes to sugar, whether it comes to how we treat somebody, even when we know that we're wrong, we still can justify it. So again, all sin starts in the heart. In Genesis, God told um, Cain that sin is crouching at the door and waiting to attack. Mm-hmm. So my honest opinion, uh, looking at human nature and, and trying to analyze this question, are we good or bad? We are bad. Mm-hmm. Um, it takes an, a higher power and a, an entity to come in to actually make us good. Mm-hmm. So we're dealing with a corrupt heart and we're dealing with biology. Um, all of us. If I hit your hand, you're going to pull away from me and potentially move into a defensive position. You're, we're going to move away from pain and uncomfort, and we're going to protect ourselves. It's innately inbuilt in all of us. If every time I saw you, you put your hand out, and instead of me shaking your hand, I punch you in the face. Maybe the first time that happened, you're like, that was really weird. 
I'm maybe just having a really bad day. And I'm like, Jason, I'm really sorry. I, I shouldn't have done that. I have no idea what, what, what happened. So the second time we meet and you're like, barely stick your hand out. And I real quick punch you in the face again. Eventually you're going to get pretty smart and do one of two things not stick your hand out or you're going to punch me in the face before I do that because you've kind of had enough. When it comes to sin, there is never enough. Yeah, so let me, let me ask you another question and this is kind of a kind of a personal question for me and I like your insight on it because you're a very biblical man. The kind of music I listen to, I catch a lot of grief for it because it's heavy metal, it's 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 grunge, it's it's just people call it the devil's music. But the way I interpret the lyrics and the words, to me, a lot of the music is a love story. Mm-hmm. But playing it to my wife, where all she hears is screaming. She's like, no, this is the devil's music. Yeah. So is that kind of is that kind of the same analogy with it? When you talk about sin, you know, like for for me, like my music is not it's not a sin to listen to the music. Maybe some of the words that they're saying is a sin, but the way that I'm interpreting it is something completely different than the way someone else interprets it. Music is probably a whole nother topic um, that I have actually been studying, Mm -hmm. even just sound waves, Mm -hmm. um, learning more of the author's intent. Mm -hmm. It's like reading the Bible. The first thing you have to do is know who's the author, Mm -hmm. who's he talking to. So the same rules to apply to a movie, to a musician. Um, If I, I, I love me, Metallic, Metallica. I, I like angry white man music, but over the years I've listened to it less and less and less and less. Yeah. Because the the peace that I'm looking for inside. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, when I'm at the gym, I'm not looking for peace. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm looking for a pump. But I realize that through the seven orifices in my head, but especially my eyes and my ears. Everything that go goes in affects me, mm-hmm. one way or another, positive or negative. Nothing is neutral. Mm-hmm. It's the same way with food. No food is not either good or bad. And a lot of times it's both. You can eat a water burger. Mm-hmm. I'm getting some meat. I'm getting some vegetables. I'm getting some bread. But I'm getting mm-hmm. some horrific process garbage mm-hmm. right so you know that's actually not something that I can answer specifically because my views on music has drastically changed in just the last three or four years mm-hmm. as I have found addiction uh, or some freedoms from my addiction mm-hmm. my not my music has changed. I still have the propensity to listen to the rock and roll. I love rap. I love the beat. But because I know that there is a spirit behind everything, mm-hmm. the author's going through something that has a story to write a book 
the singer has gone through something to feel the need to voice it and put it on a record. I know that the enemy, the Satan, Satan, was most likely some sort of high entity with music uh, and worship. And if there's one thing that he can emulate, because the only thing the devil really does is take anything that God does and manipulates it. He has no true power. He took exactly what was said in the garden with Adam and Eve. You will die. And he said, you will not die. But the devil doesn't come at us with a pitchfork and red skin and evil. He's going to come at us as, as, as attractiveness. He's going to come to us as light. And if there's, if there's any one way that he can manipulate us, it's going to, it's going to be in the world of music. And so I would just... I've been erring on the side of caution. Mm-hmm. And I hate to say this. Oh, this is just so cliche. Jesus is sitting in the car with me and we're going down the road. Or I am, he's working out with me. He's my buddy. He's, he's my spotter. I'm probably not going to be listening to Eminem. Even though Eminem, I, I can set a PR right now. I can do 100 push-ups in one minute listening to Eminem. Maybe 101. I just have to ask myself just like that there's nothing neutral when I eat it's either good or bad it's affecting me somehow yes I'm using the music to for the pump to get to get me going but this there's a spirit behind it and anything that I consume large quantities of I am what I consume. I am what I see. I am what I hear. I am what I eat. I've heard a lot of people say, no, you're not. You are your experiences. And so that's, that's what makes Jason, Jason. It's what makes me, me. It's just you've experienced things that I haven't. It's what molds our personality. Everything that we see, hear, touch, smell, and taste affects us. It doesn't affect us. It makes us. It changes us, even in the smallest microscopical or spiritual ways. The devil's not going to try to change you instantaneously. He's going to change you over time, little by little by little by little by little. I've said this to a few people. The devil doesn't even want you on his side. He just doesn't want you on God's side. So he'll manipulate you in any which way, any direction, just as long as you're not walking in a deeper, closer relationship. Again, he may not be trying to turn you completely away from God, but if God is true north and you start walking just one degree northwest, you're not going to get God. So if he can make us deviate from the straight and the the narrow Mm -hmm. by just one step. Now that also, now we get into theological discussions of, well, how about things like drinking that's not a sin, but drunkenness is. Or dancing isn't a sin, but a lot of dancing can move into lust. Mm -hmm. So where do we find those lines? Where do we define those? And I would say that's based on an individual person and not a scripture. Because I might be able to go dance at a country dance hall and not lust, but you might not be able to. 
So we just get into trying to go back and focus in on the question that you specifically asked me. Um, anything and everything that we're exposed to affects us, changes us and makes us somehow even in the smallest of ways. And so for me, being an addict, trying to fight for every smidgen of freedom, I'll take a minute of freedom, I'll take an hour of freedom, I'll take a day of freedom. I've just shifted to where I only listen to worship music, um, except when I'm in the gym. And sometimes I'll even listen to heavier worship music uh, just for the beat because I need God to infiltrate every moment of my day because I'm actively fighting for freedom. To go back and answer your question about the thought about a woman, it's probably the same way that you would struggle potentially with food when you're in the, the grocery store, the gas station, you walk by maybe your favorite aisle of snacks or candies or ice creams or whatever. You have to fight that on a daily, hourly basis. When a woman walks by me or I see her in a magazine or a billboard, it's the same. There's a little spike in the dopamine release. And so the temptation is always present. It's different than just alcohol. And until society sees sugar as a substance abuse, a killer, we're not going to be able to empathize with the obesity and morbidly obese crowd. Um, it is a sickness. It is a disease that needs to be healed the same way that you would heal somebody from any other abuse, whether that's nicotine or caffeine or crack cocaine. It is all a neurological response to a, to a feeling. As a, um, you know, along those lines, we um, we created a Bible study for um, for the book. Okay. Uh, in the Bible study, we kind of geared it towards um, the younger generation of you know high school to you know mid to late twenties, maybe early thirties um, of correlating biblical terms to rock stars okay um my my big thing is you can't even ask jackson hey i'm just sitting around i'm, I'm listening to music i'd rather listen to some music than watch tv okay um so my my correlation with like the rock stars in the bible study is um, a lot of the guys that i i i referenced are drug addicts committed suicide suffered through mental health issues but channel nowadays channel everything through their music mm -hmm. and that's kind of how it is for me like I started to write some of my own music and I was I was telling Jackson the other day you know, I was yeah. trying, trying to go the Christian route but it just the, the words that, that come out on paper it, it, it's not um, it, it's not very Christian like yeah but it doesn't make me a bad person and it doesn't it doesn't make me it, it, I don't feel like I'm being tempted by Satan because of what I'm saying it's just a way with words you're having to be able to channel 
my addiction into something else. That makes sense. Yeah, and words are the Bible says the, the power of words is life and death. Yeah. And my absolute favorite artist is Scott Stapp, the former uh, lead singer of Creed. So again, you're dealing with a Christian man, not in a Christian environment. Creed was never considered a Christian band, though it was often a little confused because sometimes there would be uh, a scripture or he would thank God or Jesus at the beginning or the end of the, but you know, he was an addict in every direction, sex addict, alcohol, drugs, everything. But he used music as an outlet but there was always, there was never like a ton of language, um, a little bit, but you could, uh, every album had a, a faceless man and that faceless man was Christ in all of his albums. You know, l- later on he left Creed, did two or three solo albums, still never put out a Christian album because he never wanted to be labeled a Christian because he wanted a wider variety audience. He said, I'm not a a Christian artist, like a Christian worship man or a a Christian contemporary. I don't want my audience to be just Christians. And so I see what you're saying, very similar to what he said. He's my favorite artist, Um, maybe because we have very similar stories. Um, But everything that I do, even though I don't have a Christian gym, I want my gym to reflect fundamentally what I believe. That doesn't mean everything that I say or that I do reflects that. But in in just my driving, in my interactions with my children, there's five or six things that that always revolve around five or six rules. Mm-hmm. And one of them, you know, again, the cliche, I I moved away from what would Jesus do to what would love do. But I'm thinking about Jesus when I, when I asked that in this moment, what would love do? What would love have me do? Um, And that's a song that Scott Stapp wrote on his, on his last album. Sometimes he writes things that a Christian wouldn't listen to. And I would just say that's a very judge minded, closed minded Christian because he's not a Christian artist. You know, I I wouldn't look at you who's bagging groceries and saying, why aren't you telling every person that comes through and bag you bag the groceries about Jesus? I mean, here, aren't you, aren't you a Christian? It's not, well, that's not my job here. My job's to bag. Well, he's not a Christian artist. So music and words are uh, the, the, the women that I helped, um, multiple times, years after years, I would know them, especially if I got involved with their lives as a detective, their uh, husbands were put in jail multiple times or for their children with CPS. I would know them for two, three, four, five years until their cases. They would say, my bruises completely healed. Like you can't see anything that he physically did to me. My heart will never heal for the things that he said while he was beating me. So the, the power of words um, can't be over expressed. Yeah, there, there's a couple couple albums that um, when I was going into sobriety that I would listen to on a daily basis. And it just gave me the motivation to say, you know, excuse my friends, but if you drugs, yeah. I'm not going right, to go back right. to you. It, it's not my age. <laughs> 
I'm stronger than you. Yeah. Um, and that that's the kind of power that I found in heavy metal. Was, I see. Was and I can kind of relate to most most songs that way is is sure. giving you the power to overcome something, or it's giving you the power to to to, to do whatever you need, need to do in life to get to the next phase. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of my my story. On that, okay. So. Well, I think we're just now kind of getting into some areas of discussion that need to be talked about. Yeah, I'm just unfortunately run out of time. Yeah, yeah. So I was gonna say we're we're, we're approaching that yeah. that time with Sonny. Thank you so much for coming on, man. I think we got we got to bring it back again eventually for a part three. We just have so much that we can kind of pick your brain about. So that we can go on for hours and hours. Well, thank you for coming on, man. I, the floor is yours just for a half second. Let okay. us know what's going on with you, where we can find you. You want to, you know, drop a little plug for the link for the gym or oh, okay, you know, anything that you got going on. Well, I, I think I would just plug um, if if you're struggling with any addiction, whatever that is, you have it's your the first step in recovery is telling somebody. Sure, you just got to tell one person, mm-hmm. and through that one person and them strengthening you, you could probably go find a group. Um, but you got to let secrets out. You got to let light expose that darkness and sometimes the hardest step is the first step because it's the most embarrassing step and so there are so many groups celebrate recovery castamonia um you know there's tons of aa groups but you know you can start with your church because i do like the idea of having a higher power as your base to finding freedom and their the correlation of those that have recovered with a higher power than those without is astronomical. So even if you're a person that doesn't believe, um, open up your heart to having a person potentially be your higher power yeah. for a little while. Um, because all faith is, is moving in a direction that you think eventually is going to lead nowhere but it leads beyond any place that you could have even imagined but every step is faith so take that first step tell somebody guys thank you so much for watching for listening to this episode of the spiraling podcast our guest sonny mcclamrock coming in for part two i really thought it was a good episode i enjoyed it especially when you combine part one and two for your guys's uh, listening experience i thought it was pretty solid guys remember you can find us where all podcasts can be heard apple Podcasts, google Podcasts, spotify and more we also upload this uh, over to youtube every single episode youtube.com slash spiraling you guys can go check it out over there check it out in video format you guys are uh, really going to enjoy this one so we'll see you guys on the next episode and hope you guys all have a wonderful day